morning. Uh, like I was introduced earlier, my name is Father Seth Williamson. Uh, I am planting a church in McKinney called Church of the Ascension, and it's so good to be back with you all once again to bring the word and worship with you this morning. As we come to God's word, let's take a second to pause and pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. We do not walk in darkness, but know who you are through the words in this book. And now, Father, as we open this book, I pray you open our hearts and minds to hear from you. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, use them to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. So my wife and I have been married for six years, and about half of our marriage, uh, we've been having to face and deal with some of the greatest challenges that any of us have, any, either of my wife and I had to face in our lives. Uh, it was three years ago, we, I was finishing up seminary. We all remember that the economy was a lot better three years ago, Right. We had just finished paying off our student loan debt. My wife's career was going well. I was about to start going out and doing my career. And we were a very happy, optimistic couple. We had this plan laid out now that we were got these things behind us, that we were going to travel around the world and we were going to buy a home and start having kids and begin to enjoy the fruits of our labors over those past three years. And we celebrated being debt-free with a trip to Ireland. So we, spent, we were going to spend a week in Ireland. Unfortunately, we picked the week the pandemic started. So we were actually in Ireland when President Trump uh, declared that there's no more travel from the EU. Thankfully, I got back. But when we landed in Texas, we were in a whole different world. I mean, the world went into quarantine, housing prices surged, the economy wasn't doing well, no churches were really hiring, and we just kind of felt frozen. And so since we couldn't travel the world and we couldn't buy a house, we decided to skip to our last step and just start having kids. And, and thanks be to God, we, we got pregnant. But in the second trimester of my wife's pregnancy, she got COVID. And that strain of COVID, as you know, has caused a lot of blood clots. And she got blood clots, which caused preeclampsia, which caused our daughter Emma to be born at 25 weeks gestation. She's what they call a micro preemie. She was one pound, six ounces when she was born. And we spent, uh, she spent 115 days in the NICU. It was the scariest, most stressful time of our life. And we were so excited when we brought her home. Shortly after that, Emma was not meeting some developmental markers, and we found out that she has cerebral palsy. And so we got hit in the gut once again, and those dreams were shattered once again. We went from being completely optimistic. We're still happy, by the way. Our marriage is great. But optimistic, full of dreams, full of potential, to within the span of a year, everything felt wrong and broken. It's so common to run into these obstacles as we pursue our dreams. Things don't ever seem to go the way that we plan. You know, your church here is going through a life transition as well. You've done a lot of things really well. Moving into this space, starting your partnership with the YMCA, successfully completing a rector search, uh, which don't always go well, so good job. 
but you, I'm sure everyone in this room has a lot of dreams and expectations for this next season of your church's life. You're excited. You're anticipating all the great things that God is going to do, but just like in anything else, when we're pursuing dreams, especially when we're following Jesus, there's going to be obstacles and oppositions and setbacks along the way. It's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's simply a matter of when it's going to happen. All we can do is be ready. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about how do we prepare for opposition? How do we prepare for opposition? If you have your Bible, please turn with me to our gospel reading, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. I've been blessed to have preached through the whole book of Mark several times in my ministry. It's an amazing story. Mark is a great storyteller. What bothers me is that because this is the earliest gospel, people treat it like it's a primitive piece of literature. It's not. Um, Mark lays out the whole book like one long journey that Jesus is taking. He, he never stops moving. And he's going on this journey from his hometown in Nazareth all the way to the cross in Jerusalem. And the other characters in the story are invited to follow him. And some of them follow, a lot of them don't. No one really makes it to the end. And what Mark is doing with his literary device is he's actually showing us what it means to spiritually follow Jesus. And so the entire gospel is about discipleship, the journey of following Jesus on his mission. And so in this part of the gospel, uh, there's a lot of details. Things are going very fast. Uh, Mark is sort of establishing Jesus' identity and who he is and what he's about. And there's three things I want to talk about as we're in this passage. I want to start by talking about the power of Jesus. Then I want to talk about the problem of Jesus' power. And I want to finish by talking about the preparation for the problem. So the power, the problem, and the preparation. Let's start by talking about the, pro the power of Jesus. Here we see in Mark's gospel that the power of Jesus is unlike any other. The power of Jesus is unlike any other. Let's look at verses 21 through 22. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So again, Mark is establishing who Jesus is. It's very fast-paced in this first part of the gospel. And we see him enter into the territory of the scribes, the synagogue, the center of biblical learning in those days for the Jews. And he's sort of taking the scribes head on. But what's interesting is Jesus' teaching is different than the scribes. Typically when a preacher preaches, if he's a good preacher, will say things like the Bible says, or thus says the Lord, appealing to some other authority. But Jesus does not make an appeal to anyone else's authority. He's saying, I say, this is what I'm teaching. He's teaching of his own accord. And so what we see here is that Jesus' teaching is far greater than any scribe, far greater than any philosopher. His wisdom and teaching and truth far exceeds all the wisdom and teaching of humanity. Jesus' teaching is with authority 
and it is unlike any other. Not just that, Jesus has real power that affects real change on the supernatural state of this world. We see in verses 25 through 26, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Now, did you notice what happened here? When Jesus is performing this exorcism, is he holding some incense? Does he use anointing oil? Is he holding a talisman? Does he recite a prayer? No, he just says, get out, and the demon gets out. He's not relying on any other means, method, name, authority, except for his own. And so what we see is that Jesus is not just an amazing, enlightened teacher, like a Buddha or a Plato, but he is divine. He has power that can even take on the forces of evil and hell in this world. Because Jesus' power is unlike any other. And as mortals, we're kind of attracted to that power. We like that power. This past Thursday night, my wife and I went to a Dallas Stars game with some members of our church plant. I'm happy to say the Stars won in overtime. It was a lot, a lot of fun. And we were all eating dinner before the game, and we prayed for our meal, as you're supposed to do. And after I said amen, my wife looks at me and goes, she says, hey, you forgot to pray that we'd win. <laughs> and, and we all laughed, you know, it was funny. But it, it kind of got me thinking. I was like, you know, we kind of do that, don't we? Especially here in Texas. Every football game, baseball game, hockey game, soccer game, both teams are coming to God and saying, Lord, Help us to crush our enemy. And it kind of made me wonder, what does God do with these prayers? Like both sides are asking him to intervene to defeat the other person. How does he kind of work that out? And I don't really know the answer to that. It's kind of beside my point. My point is this. We like the power of God because we think God can help us do the things that we want to do. We like the power of God because we think he's going to be on our side and intervene the things that we want. Now, God's ways are higher than our ways and he will ultimately work towards his glory and his kingdom, right? But at the same time, we really hope that his purposes align with our purposes because he's got the power and it's unlike any other. But here's the thing. The power of God is not neutral. It comes with some challenges. There's some problems See, the problem is that the power of Jesus invites antagonism. The power of Jesus invites antagonism. Look at verses 23 through 24. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So as Jesus is teaching, just this amazing wealth of knowledge that far exceeds the, all the libraries of humanity, a demon comes and cries out. Instead of hearing applause, we hear demonics shrieking. Instead of oohs and ahs, we hear the voice of Satan. Jesus' words are like chum in the water and the sharks are circling. It doesn't even feel safe to stand too close to him. 
If this is the kind of attention he attracts, maybe I shouldn't hang out with this guy if he's picking fights with demons. Because the teachings of Jesus challenge the status quo. They challenge the authority of Satan and his power and his stronghold. And so as Jesus' words are taught and listened to and read, they challenge the devil to a fight. They bring out the forces of darkness that want to challenge the children of light. Not only that, but sometimes the power of Jesus attracts the wrong kind of attention. Verse 28, Mark writes, And at once Jesus' fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now you might be saying, what's wrong with fame? What's so wrong with that? It's a good thing. We want everyone to know about Jesus. But fame in the book of Mark is not a good thing. Pay attention all throughout this gospel. Whenever you see a crowd gathering, it's never a good thing. Because the people who are coming and crowding around Jesus are not there to worship him. They're not there to follow him to the cross. They're there because they want something from him. They just want him to heal them. They just want him to deliver them from this oppression. They just need something, but they don't want to offer him anything, and they don't care about his glory or his kingdom or what they're going to do with their life once he's healed them. They don't care about that. They are coming down with selfish reasons, and by the end, this crowd that loves him so much will eventually turn into an angry mob and crucify him. Because you might like it for a while, but eventually your agenda and God's agenda are going to bump up against each other. And so, yes, Jesus is... Power attracts attention, but it's not always good attention. And that's the problem with the power of Jesus, is that it stirs things up and causes issues. That means for us here, every Sunday we gather, we are challenging the devil to a fight. As you continue to do ministry in your community, you will begin to bump up into the same kind of antagonism and challenges that that Jesus faced. You will not always have the positive attention you want. People will not always come here with good intentions. There will be division and fights. There will be challenges and opposition. And right now I can see some of your gears turning in your head and you're thinking to yourself, okay, preacher, I'm ready for you to tell me how to keep that from happening. Is there like a program? Do you got a book I can buy? How do we do it? Well, here's the thing. The point is, I'm trying to tell you, is you can't stop it from happening. If you have the power, you will also have the problems. And when there's no problems, you should worry because there might not be any power either. As we follow Jesus along the way, there's going to be opposition. There's no way to stop it. All we can do is be ready for it because it's not a matter of if, it's simply a matter of when. We must be ready when things don't go the way that we hope they would. So how do we prepare? How do we prepare for this? I believe the way that you prepare for the opposition is by confronting your shadow motivations. Confront your shadow motivations. I was introduced to the idea of shadow motivations by Peter Scazzaro in his book, uh, Mostly Healthy Leader. And this is how I define shadow motivations. He says, they are the accumulation of untamed, less than pure motives and thoughts. They are mostly unconscious that strongly influence and shape our behaviors. 
It's the damaged but also hidden version of who we are. Now, these are not necessarily sinful thoughts. There's nothing sinful about them. They can provoke you to sin. But these are simply those beneath the surface, unconscious dreams, hopes, and desires that all of us have that sort of follow along us in the shadow as we go about our daily lives. We have to be aware of them and keep them in check. Otherwise, they begin to drive the bus. Let me give you a classic example of a shadow motivation that shows up in church. I think we all agree that small groups are a good thing, right? We all like small groups because you get to meet friends and study God's word. And it's a real good thing. And someone might come and say, hey, I really believe in the vision of small groups. And I think I want to be a small group leader. But they also have a shadow motivation that they would like to be liked by people. And they want everyone to like them. And this might be a good way to get people to like them. And so they clean up their house and they prepare the lesson and they bake some cookies and roll out the red carpet. And they're so excited for their small group and everyone comes in and they get the small group going and things don't turn out the way they hoped it would. The conversation sometimes is actually kind of awkward and people are kind of like sitting around awkwardly in the house and people aren't like texting you throughout the week like you hoped you would. And you keep planning fun get-togethers for your group, but no one ever really shows up. And then there's this one couple that always seems to get into, like, arguments about the lesson with each other. And suddenly you go, this is really hard, and I'm not getting the kind of attention that I hoped I would. And this is not an episode of Friends like I hope it would be. And you begin to feel like you failed because your shadow motivation is not being satisfied. But let's zoom out for a second and examine the person in our scenario. I wouldn't say this person has failed at all. Relationships, when they start, are awkward. But if given enough time, will blossom and do something life-giving and necessary that will keep people coming back to this church and support them through hard times. People might always want to hang out, but if you give that time, they're coming and studying God's word. They're growing closer together. They're feeling a connection to this church. You're helping that couple work through their marital stress in your group. This person is actually doing a really good job, but they feel like they're failing because they're not becoming the prom queen. But they are glorifying the king of kings. So we have to examine these hidden parts of ourselves, dig deep down inside of us, and find out what our shadow motivations are, because all of you have dreams for this church. You've imagined the way things are going to be, the way you hope they're going to be, your relationship with your new rector and all the changes and hopefully progress. And, but we also have to look what's underneath that and recognize that all those things are good, but there might be something hidden. That when the opposition comes and things get hard and you're not actually getting the thing that you hoped you would get, you're going to get disgruntled, confused, frustrated, feel like you failed, and maybe even want to quit. We have to come before God and say, God, search me, know me, reveal these hidden parts to me. Help me to see those selfishly motivated parts of myself and then offer them up to God as a sacrifice and say, Lord, even if my dreams don't come true, I pray that your dreams come true for my life, my family, and this church. If you follow Jesus, you have access to the power, but you also will attract 
his enemies. You know, when we brought Emma home from the NICU, we thought we had dodged a bullet. We thought it was over, that we had made it. And then we got the diagnosis of cerebral palsy, and we learned that she would have trouble walking for the rest of her life. And our hearts are broken all over again because of those shadow motivations we have as parents. I don't know if my daughter will ever get married. I don't know if I get to walk her down the aisle. I don't know if she'll ever give us grandkids. I don't know what our vacations are going to look like. These dreams felt broken in the hearts of me and my wife. But this is what I want to say about all that. God is good, and he is powerful. And just like my daughter, all of us struggle to walk. All of us struggle to take those steps as we walk with our Heavenly Father. She's not just some special needs kid. She's my kid. She's God's kid. She's marked as Christ's own forever. And even if my dreams don't come true for her, God has big plans and dreams for her. More than anything I could ask or imagine. And as you limp along with the Heavenly Father, know this, he's not going to give up. So I guess we shouldn't either. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.